Welcome again, ladies and gentlemen, everyone, to the philosophy of artless science. As always, you can join the YouTube channel directly at even a dollar a month to give back, or head over to aksum.substack.com or patreon.com slash aksum. Today's returning guest is Diakon Adam Asalase. Welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. And this time, I have a gift to the Ethiopian church from you, the letter that kills variant readings of Genesis 37.3 in the Andimta corpus. I, I want this to be semi-standalone, but I don't want to rehash everything that we've um, done before. So could you reintroduce yourself as I was pleased to see the meet the author section at the back of the book? Can you um, introduce yourself and talk about how a person interested in the natural sciences could also be interested in the school of biblical exegesis from the motherland yeah um <clears throat> i think you mean the the uh, well i guess they they categorize the uh, everything as the natural sciences but it would be specifically the physical sciences um uh i think it's the um classical um what's uh what is it? The classical uh, um, understanding where you have um, the Renaissance combination of uh, chemistry and mathematics and and physics and religion, uh, especially if if you look back to like Isaac Newton before things were so specialized that um, they were their own branches and uh, difficult to be accessible uh, in in a reasonable amount of time um but you know I, I think it's that's what it is it's it's the interest of all things that um truth and science and and uh poetry and and religion i think the mind is desires to understand all things i, I think it's very natural and um you know the epitome is the renaissance that that's good so i think you have a very strong classical argument for there that these things aren't as separate as they are but it's all under the idea of seeking kind of truth and all of its manifestations but i have to say because i think you and i have gotten to this and we've we're going to look at a few figures that i think highlight this point as well but um i want to say that that's not that common am i wrong in that do you see yourself uh people who are other aerospace engineers working on embedded spacecraft flight software who are also interested in oriental orthodox christianity or even christianity you know as a broader thought not not at all <clears throat> i i don't think it's common and i i i think that's why you and i are often in dialogue because uh, we don't have we don't have an a, a, another medium on which to you know we don't have a set we don't have a place um uh, to discuss and grow in these ideas. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, that's fair. So bringing it back again to your book, and again, I don't want to repeat too much of what we've said before, but we've talked a lot about how when you were un uh, younger, you were more interested in, I think it's, it's fair to say, although it could come off uh, pejoratively, uh, the smells and bells of the church, which is to say the sort of the outward melodies and 
and the hymns of the church, which have great importance. And we know St. Ephraim the Syrian, um, he had like kind of Bible studies, but he also had these liturgical studies in co-ed communities. So, you know, it's not that they're diametrically opposed, but I think um, often you find people specializing back home and somehow you spent you spent a lot of time learning the the intricate very intricate melodies of the church and i'm sure you could tell us too and i've seen some of the musical notations you've even handwritten and would share uh in public and i always enjoy those but you also found time to just go because you're talking about religion as a field you you know you did that from a kind of musical point of view but now you've become extremely textual what, was that something that you saw as a smooth transition, or what can you say about that? No, I don't think it was a smooth transition. Um, I, I think it was a necessary. You can only get so far with with, with the sensual with the with with the sense experience, um, and but I think that's the first experience uh, through childhood. Uh, everyone has um, fond uh, memories of the frankincense anyone that's grown up i think in the in the oriental uh, orthodox churches or in any of the apostolic churches you know there's a there's a reminiscent um uh it uh, just a, just a sense experience that occurs um and the music is on the same line you know it's the ears the the nose the eyes the beauty the exterior uh beauty and the cultic um not in a pejorative a uh, 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 term. I think that term is has a negative context, a connotation um, um, among uh, lay lay people of biblical studies. I think cult is a very you know, the temple cult. It, it, it's it's a normal uh, thing. But uh, so the transition is a bit rather than like a charismatic leader who's uh, almost always ends up getting the girls. <laughs> yeah. So a, a, a focus on the uh, liturgical uh, 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 temple or uh, that type of religious expression as opposed to, uh, yeah, the, a focus on the preacher and his um, eloquence of his words or persona. Um, but yeah, it's it. I think it was a rough transition, uh, honestly, because um, you and uh, others have uh, a interest that I know have an interest um, particularly in linguistics and that that is a tra trajectory that'll take you towards um the study of literature uh for me the study of languages which uh you and uh, another friend of ours have pushed me towards was um out of an interest for the literature which it you know i can't tell you when it happened because i think it was a very gradual uh maybe five to seven-year period where uh, moving slowly away from the uh the musical uh focus uh in, into more of a textual focus uh as as an expression of um religious scholarship um it, it, it took a it took a good amount of time and a good amount of pressure yeah that's fair and that's how diamonds are made right it's through the pressure through the through the rough and it's interesting, I don't want you to sell yourself short because you might not be as uh, obsessed in the finer points of, of language as others, but you know, 
my my language palette uh, pales in comparison to Mahadi. And then when we get to you, even at your base, before you started looking into the biblical languages, you already had Gezamarinya and English, you know, at different levels. But being a diasporic deacon for decades helps you kind of practice those those three things. To get into the text itself, as I said, the other video we made discussed the literature review, so we will be skipping that and entering into chapter two. I was hoping you could give kind of a gursha of each chapter to the audience to entice them to purchase the book, and we'll uh, plug it again at the end and have an Amazon link up, hopefully, wherever this video is, and uh, perhaps the audio as well, if I'm able to separate that. Chapter two is titled The Early Church and Variants in the Septuagint. And this, this word variant comes up as well in the uh, subtitle of the book itself. Can you just talk about what the Septuagint is and what variants are? Yeah, so the Septuagint is a Greek rendering, uh, rendering of the Hebrew. And it was a um, translation uh, that was made for Jews uh, by Jews um, around uh, after the uh, conquest of the known world by Alexander and the spread of Hellenic culture, Hellenic um, as in uh, Greek for uh, those that might not know what that term refers to. Um, so it's a it's a version that we would have seen um, a version of the Old Testament text that we would have seen does not include the New Testament. Septuagint does not refer to the New Testament. Uh, and so it's a version that we would have encountered if we were um, alive as Jews or Christians in the first, second, or third century. It, it's a very common, not the only translation, um, and but, but a very common one, and, and one that seems to have been quoted by the gospel authors um, and and uh, very importantly also Paul. Uh, and I understand that it was a labored, uh, I call, it's called, it's better expressed as a rendering because uh, it is focused on um, word order, not necessarily uh, um, a translation at a sentence or phrase level, um, more so at a word level uh, and um, variants are, um, I think something that uh, for lay people that are interested in the Bible, I think it's something that uh, would come as a shock, but something that is very normal uh, for those who engaged in uh, the biblical text up until at least the development or, or yeah, at least the development of the uh, printing press, uh, because the Bible was um, copied uh, and um, preserved in a manu manuscript culture. And um, what you have is are, are people uh, laboriously copying uh, versions of the biblical text. And um, what, when you have that, you end up with uh, some places that are worded differently. Some wordings may be unimportant, uh, others uh, may point to, uh, especially in the context of the Septuagint, may, variants may point to the um, earlier uh, 
Hebrew text that the Greek versions were um, uh, translated from. And uh, uh, so Septuagint and variants, um, I think these are two things that are very important, very important points to at least have heard of uh, for anyone that is interested in um, having a, a, a serious, a, a good level of biblical literacy. Yeah, you often hear in American Christian circles the idea of the infallibility of the Word of God. I remember, uh, and we'll get back to one of the figures, one of the figures you quote from, I remember even, talks about the erroneousness of the text uh, and, and seeing the defectiveness of it and seeing the variance. It, were you ever concerned for your own faith when seeing these variants? Did it shake it in any way? And is there any concern of, um, of, of the audience receiving it in that way? Obviously, you can't control people, but um, I mean, not, not that many people read anyway. I like to say that the, the allergy for reading may be greater than things like pollen and peanuts and other stuff. Hmm. Um, so to begin with, I, th I think serious, um, um, any religious scholarship or theological scholarship, um, I, th I think, you know, it is, um, it is, it, it, it's like playing with fire. I think, I think, you know, it, it's not easy. Um, if you are concerned with what the outcome is going to be at the end, like in terms of your faith, uh, and so on. Uh, biblical scholarship, I think, is rough on um, of those uneasy uh, about about their faith. Um, I don't think it's unclear what the uh, paradigm is in my book uh, because mm -hmm. um, it, it's it's my argument is that these variants have always existed, and yeah. um, even the the question, the, epis the epistemological question, or um, I don't know if that's a British way of conjugating that word um uh and not an american I've, I've i think the uh the american english uh does it differently but the um the epistemic question is that right is that the is that the american english i've heard both in this case i often actually know the british and the american and i favor the american almost every time like toward versus towards and stuff like that but and this one i don't know so so the question of of the capacity of the text in terms of its language to reveal God um, the the ancient church um, is very clear on its perspective about that so I don't leave I don't leave the the reader dangling or anything I think it's hard it's hard enough to engage in this research yourself um, and uh, you know you you see what the cost is because uh, you know this isn't something I just uh, put together in a year or two. Uh, this took a little bit of time, and then even after it was it was done, um, it was submitted as a, as a thesis. But you know, it was edited to be accessible. Um, so I don't leave it up to the reader. Uh, I, I direct the reader to the sources of the early church and um, the later church, um, and how it viewed um, these and preserved. The variants. I mean, these aren't. It's not like we didn't know about these things, and um, it's not like they're not preserved. 
So in this, in the in chapter two, I think it's chapter two. That's the uh, so the Septuagint and its variants. Mm -hmm. um, it is a study on the early church and how it preserved through manuscript culture, um, through manuscript transmission of the text, how it preserved uh, the variants that it found in the Greek version of the Old Testament and um, why it preserved that, the, the question, the philosophical question, like how did they see these things? Um, so the, the way they believe God was revealed um, through the text is not how we see it. Um, so you wouldn't, we wouldn't even have the, a discussion about biblical iner inerrancy because it just didn't exist. And I don't even call it that in my writing because it would be projecting uh, a, a 20th, 21st century or 19th century uh, question onto a work that's looking at a uh, first, second, third century biblical scholarship and even 16th and then 16th, 17th century um, uh, Ethiopian biblical scholarship. And this just term, I don't, I didn't find it anywhere. So I didn't take it. I didn't copy the question from, um, I think it's probably from uh, scholasticism. I'm not sure from uh, the Roman church or the Protestant church. Um, that word biblical inerrancy uh, you won't find it. I don't use it. Um, and so if you start from the first century, uh, which is kind of where the context starts for uh, chapter two, uh, you don't see these these words. You see the text, you see the 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 various versions that uh, I'll drop a name here, origin of Alexandria. That was my next question. Yeah. Go ahead. So you see the various versions that uh, he is consulting uh, side by side together and also uh, a, a Hebrew version. And um, you see him collecting and collecting for interpretation uh, the variants that occur in some of the readings it's not like these things are all over the place they they um they're localized and so he collected them and then this even though his work disappeared the variants that he collected were preserved through um or an oriental church uh the syrian church in its serial serial hexapla where it copied these variants uh, and kept them. And then uh, in, in subsequent chapters, we see um, uh, one example that pops up in the 16th, 15th, 16th, 17th century Ethiopia, and uh, you find it um, uh, being used to change the reading of a chapter of Genesis. Yeah, it's amazing. I've seen images of the hexapolis as well. And they're just amazing to see um, these characters that you select. They're they're very interesting. There is, and I, I think you you answered my first question there very well. Um, Mahadi to some brothers when he was summarizing your book called it uh, this this thread of struggle between folkloric biblical literalism, faithfulness, and in that early church period. You, you had these two figures, Origen and St. Ephraim, the Syrian, 
the savvy hearers will notice that we didn't say Saint Origin. So can you talk about the way you're able to look at him? Because like Father Paul Nadim Tarazi looks at a person like Origin and um, you know, frankly finds like the universalism heretical, as other people have pointed to as well and a lot of the other conclusions to be bad, but appreciates the methodology and especially his interest in studying the original biblical languages and, and finding these manuscript variants and all which are necessary parts of trying to get at the meaning of God's message to humanity through through these texts. I'm wondering, because you have them, these two figures kind of side by side, but obviously our church and, and we treat them differently what you thought of uh, at looking at the scholarship of origin and looking at the scholarship of Ephraim the Syrian. So, you know, origins work stands, uh, stands uh, strong in and of itself. I mean, it's, it's almost a, uh, a, a, a work of philology. Um, he's creating a critical addition uh, to the, if we can call it that, the, the best reading possible of the um, Old Testament. And so it doesn't matter who he is, um, his work is his work. Um, so, but then it, when comparing um, Saint Ephraim the Syrian, uh, who is a saint in the, the Oriental Orthodox, the, uh, the um, Greek Orthodox and the Catholic, I believe also in the Catholic churches and just that's I think right. all all the apostolic churches. Period. I think he's he's considered a saint. Um, um, his 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 work is is uh, used as a backup, like you know, as a secondary, um, and beyond even uh, origin. Um, I'm looking at his commentary and his thought on on the language. But I but I did the same for uh, I did the same for origin also. Uh, beyond both of them, though, is the text itself. Uh, the important thing is, like, what is the text saying? Um, what is it getting at? What is its context? Who is its audience? What What does the text mean? Not what not not what 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 are we? You know, we have to be careful to uh, not project our own questions onto it. Mm -hmm. We have to look at what it's saying, and so that is the the, the main center of of all of of this. The, the this scholarship, you know. Its aim is the text as the as the source, and so you know these works just stand. Um, I, I don't I don't even impose their what what they're saying onto the text. It's uh, th that's that's the flow of logic here. Is like it's this is the study of the text, not what someone in the third century thought of it necessarily. That's that's a wonderful way of putting it. And you have here a quote from St. Ephraim from Sebastian Brock's The Luminous Eye, The Spiritual World Vision of St. Ephraim the Syrian. And Sebastian Brock, fascinating figure, world's leading Syriac scholar, never leaves the Anglican church, but receives the title Malfono, or teacher, from, our, from the Syriac church, the West Syriac, which is in communion with us. And you have this quote from there, which uh, he uses this language frequently, because I don't have that book, but I've seen this language frequently. He clothed himself in our language so that he might clothe us in his mode of life. And you comment on here about how uh, the words of scripture are intended to convey a revelation to humanity. I wonder if you have anything to say about that. I found that line very beautiful. 
Yeah. Um, the, the this line of thought, this clothing, declothing, um, uh, Syriac theology, uh, and it, it, it's it's an understanding of the language, right? Uh, so I'm not even using that to say what the Bible is. Um, it is an understanding of the language of the Bible. Uh, so later on, I also look at Yenita Henok, uh, who is a, a scholar uh, uh, who, who passed away um, not too long ago, but of the uh, non-Eucharistic liturgies. And his perspective is that the, the text conveys to us the customs of God because it's the it's talking about the relationship of Yahweh and certain people and so in in certain stories you see certain aspects of 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 God and in certain stories you see other aspects and overall the Old Testament is a history of God with with this chosen people of of the of Israel and so um so my, my comment there is that like what is the what is this the scripture it's revealing a person a being so we don't you know we don't worship a text uh it's there as instruction from the being that revealed it you see what i'm saying even in the new testament we don't have a text to worship we have a church we have a church which is a collective body just like the old testament israel it's literally called israel according to the spirit in 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 paul's interpretation so what is given to the israel according to the spirit to this people because the church is not a building it's a it's a people that are tied into a pact a covenant um with this person what is handed over to them is another uh, set of canonical texts the New Testament, and so we we don't have a text to worship. We you know we have a text that is written in the context of a relationship between humans and uh, the divine being Yahweh, um, and so on. Uh, in the, the various names that you have for God and the various um, uh, persons of of the Trinity, uh, when you get to the New Testament. Uh, um, text and so it's it is a vehicle that is used for a being that is on a completely different mode of existence if you read on Ephraim says that we're on a separate side of a chasm of being so that can't even you know a chasm that, that, that can't be crossed so um so th this is what the text is. It is about a being that re requests uh, a covenant relationship uh, with the people that this text is written towards, and that that text lays out the details of that covenant and the nature, the um, not the nature. I mean to say the customs. I, I think that's that's a perfect way of saying it. The customs of the one who is. Uh, conversing with humanity and Ephraim says you know he put on our language and our language uh, is not um, um, is not 
uh, to be tied to his nature. You, you can read it there in the exact quote um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Um, it does not pertain to his being. The language does not pertain to his being. So even the text, it doesn't suit him. Uh, and so Ephraim goes on to say uh, that it's as it's as if speaking to a child. What 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 Yahweh did with Israel, it was it was how it was in the same way that an adult speaks to a child, and and you uh, as as a recent father, you understand that. Um, you can't talk to me like you talk to your son is you know it does and, and the way you talk to your son does not pertain to you and who you are and your language so you're stoop you're coming down to communicate with um a baby and it, it it's the same uh metaphor that uh that you know the text is trying it is a vehicle uh because we can't we're not able to speak God's language, God speaks ours, and that's done uh, in order to present to us who he, who he is, how he acts, and things about him um, that are necessary. That's right. Er, very well said. Early on in my Orthodox Christian study of scripture, I was a big listener or hearer of Dr. Jeannie Constantinou's work and she used the technical term condescension to describe what you're saying the idea that he's coming down to our level my first job out of college was with americorps as well and i was working in an education nonprofit in a, in a public school in, in watts and uh, one of the things they would tell us is you don't really know something unless you could explain it to a fourth grader or you know insert third grader first grader you, you know you talked about my son he's a under a year right now so uh obviously understands a lot less um but yeah that's an excellent way of expressing it and moving on to chapter three chapter three is titled the bible in the ethiopian church you make this movement in your text which is much like my sermons so the strategy of my my homilies which is to begin with the universal and then to get more narrow into the particular and so you you've told us about uh, a category of an umbrella category that covers even Jews and Christians in terms of their usage of the LXX or the old Greek or the Septuagint. And that is certainly the major influence upon the biblical texts received in Ethiopia, but it's not the sole influence. It's not just a copy paste. Could you talk about other influences on the biblical texts and variants received by the church in Ethiopia? Uh, so the variants, you want me to talk about the variants or or just whatever other languages they're receiving texts from uh so we're sticking to texts still and not commentary if, I'm, if, if to be clear right y yeah so uh, yeah so um greek is is certainly looks like the main uh, uh, uh translation that the ethiopic made um so greek it looks like greek uh, Vorlagen or source texts, and then there are obviously other languages because you find in certain books of the Bible, uh, remember the Bible is a library, um, and so you find Arabic uh, in some suggestions of Hebrew and Syriac, uh, depending on the the time period and whatever was going on, and um, I don't think there's any consistency 
uh, as, as as it wasn't like the church um, decided to revise everything uh, and had an order to, to call together um, scholars and know that it's not that. I think it's various times and the, and, and the translators are talented in different ways. Some don't know what they're doing. Uh, some are very skilled. And um, even when you look at those who are commenting on the text, like the, the great scholar Memher Erzdros, he's even uh, you know looking at the text and he's like, I'm he's not wasting his ingenuity on interpreting a defective text. Those are his words. Uh, and instead he is aiming to find a more accurate readings. And so um, this isn't, uh, this isn't an an opinion that I have. This is just this is the data. The te the textual data shows this. The those who who forged the commentary tradition they know this and they've said this and I've quoted them. Um, uh, even the different sides. You know, there, there's two main groups of biblical commentary uh, scholarship uh, that's traditional to the to to. Um, or indigenous, the indigenous scholarship, and they both see that there's issues with the Ge'ez text, and um, and uh, this is I'm going all all on on a tangent right here, just from the point that those who made the translations were skilled at various levels, and some were not that skilled, and 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 this is reflected even by the those who commented on the text, but the the primary um, language. Uh, uh, as it, fr of the sources that that the is was translated from is is Greek, and um, there have been edits made to it in light of Hebrew and uh, Arabic uh, and maybe Syriac. Thank you. I, I'm so glad you made that distinction early on between commentary and text itself. I think it's one of the main things that I took away from your project that I learned that was brand new some of it was repeat but uh, that was certainly novel uh, to me and then you're mentioning of Mamher Esteros or Professor Esteros I want to come back to him but first I want to talk about um, Professor Kidana Kifle and his teacher uh, Professor Kifle Georgis as well and what's fascinating I think about his life is that uh, both of them were you know kind of exiled and had their own theological issues, but I appreciate how you focus on, like you said, the work of the man himself rather than the historical or biographical details that could distract from the um, the actual work that they did. And especially, I think, Kitana Wadkifle, uh, his life sounds like an Indiana Jones film, just the way he went out of his way to hunt down a commentary on Ezekiel and to to prepare that for the church and actually <laughs> i have it have one with me right right here with the great wheel of ezekiel <laughs> so uh that's one of my favorite things and of course i named my my son after him as well and uh shout out to my wife who believes it was her idea but <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh we'll leave it at that uh could you tell the audience about uh, a couple of these great men about Kidana Wadkifle and Kifle Georgis. And it, it, it took me a lot of uh, uh, self-control to not uh, say something while you're speaking because uh, 
um, I, I, you know, I, I enjoyed just now listening to your summary, but I wanted to say to you that everyone was exiled. Um, everyone that uh, I, that I, I think, I think everyone that I mentioned in the book has, was exiled. Wow. Um, uh, uh, or the abbot in Wakom, the, the legendary abbot of Debra Divanos, he was exiled. Uh, he was asked by the um, king uh, he, uh, of his time after his exile to return, and and, and he, uh, I believe, he um, turned that offer down. Merkadingel, who appears in the the, the last uh, chapter, um, he was exiled. Uh, he he, I think he chose exile. To it seems maybe to even to the same region that his teacher. Who was who's the the who I just mentioned the uh, abbot of uh, the Deborah Dimanos Monastery uh, abbot uh, uh, in Bagom? So I, I think they were they both chose exile to a similar region, the north um, western region of uh, the border of, of Gondor and uh, Sudan. Kadanwal uh, Kifle was exiled. Whether you know, I think I think his was a uh, self-imposed uh, exile. I'm not sure. His his was in Harar, uh, so Esdros exiled himself to the um, monasteries of um, of um, Lake Tana. Um, his his was also more of a uh, self imposed exile uh, because his ideas were he, he you know he just thought like that he, this work of commentary has to be fixed. Some people didn't. Like some of his students didn't like it. I don't think he really had peers. Uh, he was that th that much of, of a great scholar. He you know he appears in every single one of the uh, they call them tridents of ma of of masters. He's everywhere if you, th that you see the succession of the great teachers of the Old Testament or the New Testament or patristic texts or the monastic texts. He's everywhere. His name appears. In, in all of the references to the great teachers. And so the, I think I think it's the nature of the society that you know exiles these people. Yeah, it's it's very sad. you know, I'm, I'm just looking here within chapter three, you have a, a portion where, for example, um, Abba Georgis of Segla, whom Mahari is writing about and we'll look forward to his dissertation on the subject, is uh, his book of mysteries, his Mazafa Mister is one of the targets of, of criticism. There's there's nothing that's not a target of criticism. And so um, in a culture and society where the tallest blade of grass can get cut down, which is, is usually said of, of certain Anglo and Scandinavian societies, but I think there's a little bit of that in our Afro-Asiatic society as well. It's um, it's not surprising, if you don't mind me asking, then are you, re are you ready for exile if you're not already in exile? I'm, I think I'm, I'm a self-imposed uh, exile. Um, I, 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 what you just quoted, you know, was criticized. So Abba Gyorkizi's Mas'afa Mister or the Book of Mysteries was criticized by Alak Akidan Old Kifle. And it was criticized, not just, not just his text, but um, Nubura'id, um, I forget the name, it's on there. Nubura'id um, Isaac, is that, yeah, Isaac. Uh, who wrote the hagiography of Kostos um, and who perpetuates a myth of a biblical source text um, uh, from uh, a Hebrew uh, um, 
of uh, um, Vorlog, he just beats he beats he beats him up right there. He's like, that is just an obvious lie. You 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 have not seriously looked at the text, which um, derives all nouns not from Hebrew but from Greek, and he's saying that the 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 story the folklore of a biblical source coming from hebrew during the period of the uh king solomon the son of uh king david in he's saying this is just a blatant lie and he's telling us when it got started also um it got started by people who and and this is a phenomena that occurs now it's clergy who write text in their in their own name uh, without a critique of their peers uh and the church has to carry that and so you know uh even chapter three when it starts out talking about where did the ethiopic text of the bible uh where was it translated from where where, where you know it, it it's saying that the myth came from people who wrote books in their own name and propagated it within the church mm-hmm. namely the hagiography of Kostos and the book of mysteries of uh, Abba Georgis uh, so uh, again those are not my words those are Al-Kidanwal Kifli's uh, words and and you you know you see a pattern that exists now uh, there are there, there it's the same thing now people writing their own ideas into the dialogue of uh the church but it's not the church's dialogue it's their own it's 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 things of their own making and and, you know gets thrown into the whirlwind of you know the theological whirlwind of uh of um the 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 church and uh, you know i I had to say that because you you read that quote and the magnitude of that quote uh you know should be emphasized absolutely and these large texts that you have from it just as a reminder to people is in Amharic because this tradition is and I have to emphasize it as a language buff in Giz and in Amharic in medieval Ethiopia and at a time where there are a lot of other languages and people may be speaking other languages but they write in Giz and Amharic in the same way the early Egyptians were um, their language of education was Greek and some of the North African fathers outside of Egypt their language was Latin because that was the kind of uh, language of scholarship of their of their purview. So they could have been from a number of different, you know, tribes or ethnicities, although they may be more of one than the other, but they're writing this in Giz and in Amharic. And you mentioned both Mamhur Hanok, uh, not talking about me, and, and uh, Mamhur Esdaros earlier. Was there anything else about either of these figures that you wanted to say or emphasize that we didn't get to earlier? Yeah, so so uh, let let me just say some closing thoughts about uh, Memher Esteros, and let me be clear that Memher Henok um, is a was was a more recent was a more recent not a biblical scholar necessarily. I'm not he might be, but I'm not quoting him uh, as one. Um, I, I was quoting his Canticles, some of the Canticles. Um, um, Memher Esteros uh, was a was a Gondarin uh, from the Gondarin period, and his ideas um, I show to be consistent with the with the mechanism under which the Ethiopian commentary tradition corrects the biblical text. 
and it, it's not only one mechanism it's several uh when i say mechanism i mean technical approaches or for formulaic stylistic methods under which the text is clearly critiqued and corrected um one of those is one of those mechanisms is the way it's corrected uh through ancient readings one of those is a way it's simply corrected by the interpreter and and the interpreter says uh that's not what it, it what, what it means to say is this so these mechanisms show that the criticism that memher esdros had of the biblical text is a method of interpretation that is now embedded in the commentary tradition and i prove that with ex with literary examples from uh old testament commentary on uh the book of samuel and it's a very interesting example because it clearly shows um that that they had even before the printed edition uh, this approach where they would correct these manuscripts that they had you know now we have printed editions but they had manuscripts and so they would correct it um the gospel of i have an example from the gospel of john a commentary on the gospel of john that shows um how they would correct the text through um uh readings uh, old readings that they found from patristic uh, commentary and so they're t they're looking at the text that the uh people in the patristic period uh third fourth fifth century had and um and, and an example from the book of monks and so inescapable is the fact that those engage in the tradition now it's right there that these texts are corrected and and they're not assumed to be uh completely accurate and there's an approach to this um, and so you, you know it it's embedded in the style of exegesis yes and and um i have and people could look this up once they purchased a book as well here i think that's first samuel 23 14 you have whenavara with the gadam gadam is eight and you're comparing it to the greek of the septuagint you have whenavara dawit with the gadam zamasaret and the interpretation you have and other um, explanations of this. I think it's an important time to also jump in um, because the technical terms that are used also in this tradition sometimes are used, I think, loosely by people not super involved in the tradition. And that's something I also picked up from your project of which usually could mean either translation or interpretation. And then andimta. I see some people using uh, which, you know, and one more meaning. Uh, I see them using it um, kind of interchangeably, but can you um, can you talk? About, and then I've even heard that andimta itself means when there's more than one meaning to a text, where if it's one meaning, they'll say bo. Um, like, could you talk about the difference between tirguami and andimta? Uh, andimta is Amharic commentary on Ge'ez text. Tirguami, I think the one thing that you can say about it it's is that it is completely in Giz. um you, you know you do see some of the style stylistic 
it, it's not uniform though. Andimta has been not only, it's not only, let me rephrase that. It's not only that it is an Amharic commentary on a Giz text, it is formulized. So it, it's been crystallized into this, in, into this um, singular tradition. You see what I'm saying? The Tirugwami, you know, it's going to be in Giz and you don't know what you're going to find. It could be flowing commentary. Um, it could be, um, uh, uh, it could have the bow. It could have, like, as there, to, to say there is uh, um, uh, uh, someone who interprets like this, or uh, thus said so and so, John Chrysostom, thus said John Chrysostom, thus said Cyril of Alexandria, thus said. Um, a, a, a local um, uh, um, exegete, etc. So the difference is that one, the language of the commentary is is Amharic or Giz. Their difference. Two, the Andamta is um, uniform, and the Tirugwami is not. You, you you don't know what you're gonna find. The Tirugwami could also be translated from Arabic. It might not even be clear sometimes what it's saying because the grammar is trying to um, stick to the Arabic or the Syriac, whatever it was translated from. Usually it's Arabic even if it came from Syriac, it seems. So it'll be an Arabic translation of a Syriac uh, a commentary. Um, so that's what you have. Andamta is going to be Amharic and it's going to be formulized. That's very good. I was just discussing kind of contemporary or modern dialects of Amharic as part of my language nerdiness at Thanksgiving. And one of my aunts couldn't help but commenting on my Amharic, what my spoken Amharic uh, is a strange mix depending on my context of Arada Amharic or street Amharic from Addis Ababa mixed with 20th and 21st century uh, church Amharic, a mutual friend of ours, Asis Mabratu, a scholar in his own right of the liturgy and of uh, the Christology of the church, he once said, you speak like the Bible. And <laughs> um, uh, Hanging around monks and reading the Bible does that to you. I was explaining to my sister Adisaba and then Diredawa especially, and, and to some extent Harar, are considered the rudest form of contemporary Amharic, uh, highly slang written and and almost crude things that you say there, if you were in the Amhara rural setting, uh, might get you killed, might get members of your family killed. The, the, I love the word crystallized that you said of this. Some uh, scholars in the West who write in English, uh, you can find on ResearchGate and academia.edu, uh, even like uh, the late great professor Gitacho Haile, they refer to this as old Amharic, capital O, old like Bruy Amharic or old Amharic. I'm wondering what you can say about people who want to engage in this type of research that you've done, uh, because I would I would categorize you as one of the like best Amharic. Uh, I don't, I want to phrase it right because you were you were you were back home but you came as a kid. If you were born here, I'd easily give it to you. But <laughs> uh, I, I give you a little bit of cheating because you came from back home. Uh, but as a as a kid, really. As a, ba uh, as a baby. <laughs> as a baby. I still, yeah, I still, it's an asterisk. But yeah, you're, it's yeah, a gray area. Needless to say, your Amharic is very excellent, but it's not so approachable. And I wonder what you could say about the old Amharic, especially if there are 
either younger deacons or anyone of interest in the church who wants to get into this, uh, dig into this commentary or on Dimta literature, what can you say about the old Amharic and anything that can be done to kind of prepare oneself for it? Um, I don't, I don't think you can prepare, uh, cause e even I need help with the Amharic, uh, and, and even the people I reached out to, they didn't know what it was saying either. Uh, so it's a Gondarin Amharic and I have a lot of, uh, close friends from there. And, uh, you know, sometimes I've had to call them like, what in the world is this talking about? It just makes no sense. And they were like, let me call someone and ask also. Um, so, so, you know, you're not really going to, it is old. It, it is old uh, Amharic and um, you're, you know, if you're, if you're extremely fluent, that's good. That's a good point to get to. And, and, but then, you know, it, it's not like you're not going to have an issue with it. You're definitely going to have an issue with the Amharic that you find in the Andamta at all times. I've I've never found I've never met anyone um, in my personal life outside of clergy that knew what it was talking about, and even uh, those um, uh, who are um, traditional scholars, those people I know who are traditional scholars have also um, looked at it like you know it just needs to be fixed. It's old, like the Amharic, um, and and so I, I should also mention that there's a difference. Um, between the printed edition, which sticks to the old classical Gondarin Amharic, and let's say Yenita um, Demsa at Baata, his is more clear. Um, and and I and, and I have because he has print books as well. You mean like the spoken version that he does? Uh, so even his handwritten. Uh, um, so I have access through a friend to his handwritten commentaries. Um, so his son um, is a friend of mine and I have access to the handwritten commentaries. Um, you know, uh, they, the Amharic is much more clearer. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's not a problem you're not going to run into no matter how good you are. Uh, I, everyone does, e even those, um, even some, you know, some of the scholars have had to modify it, like uh, at Baata. Um, you know, they, 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 it's just lacking. Um, but it is a good, if you want to study uh, old Amharic, you know, good for you because this thing has just preserved it. If if you're there just for the for the linguistic aspect of you know you want to and and there's people that want to study Amharic there there's some interesting papers on it that I've read uh, just about old Amharic and they almost always have to rely on the Andamta because it is just a a, a, a great um, collection of uh, not only old grammar uh, and syntax but um, references to material. The material culture that you just really aren't not going to find anywhere that that's so great because um i have heard and been exposed to so many cultural anthropologists with uh, all due respect from which i believe a lot of the filth of secular scholarship comes from and one thing that they have to like appreciate is, for example, the early Russian Orthodox Church entering Alaska and helping the American Indian or Inuit natives there preserve their language 
by consigning it to a text and having a certain corpus of biblical literature that then other people, even if they're not interested in the work of the Orthodox Church, could then use to, to piece together their language. So you're saying to me, even if there are other interests that are not church-oriented or Amharic studying this corpus, which you have in the Andimta corpus, is going to be beneficial to, to them as well. I wanted to move to one of the other uh which People. is real quick, which is also the case in the Bible. You have to you have to understand that the Bible is also a preservation of a particular people's uh, their language and their culture. And so when you um, go to interpret the text or understand the text, you have to understand that that's what it is. And 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 so it, this is also the case here in the Andamta. It is encapsulating a, a certain language, a certain time period, a certain culture. Just like also the Quran, which is the encapsulation of the uh, Quranic Arabic, and so the classical Arabic, that is where you have to go to uh, learn it. If I'm not mistaken, I, I, I'm not a student of the Quran uh, or of classical Arabic, but those who do study it uh, inform me that that is the case. Yeah, neither am I. And I actually just saw a non-Muslim guy who had passages of the Quran memorized, and he was shocking this random. Muslim guy and he was like why do you know this stuff and it's for the same reasons that that you and I are talking about and when you were discussing the Septuagint translation I think you made this point as well I don't know if people caught it biblical translations are usually called word for word or thought for thought literal or dynamic and I think you were saying it's more on the literal side of that spectrum it is a spectrum and you see uh, you know the message is famously and the patois or Jamaican version of the Bible or the Hawaiian pidgin version famous very famous thought for thought versions and then there are arguable other uh, literal translation I have David Bentley Hearts which I recently read uh, for some faithful in Las Vegas his uh, although I, I'm not a big fan of his universalism as well I think his uh, translation of scripture is very excellent in its literalness on the other side I have N.T. Wright's uh, who's on the extreme thought for thought end because you, you, you got to be able to look at, at at both of these things to see what they're trying to to do if you're a serious student of scripture. But you have this, um, the character of Merkadingil who occupies um, chapter four as well. And chapter four is in, in fact, uh, he's eponymous there. His title, the title of chapter four is Merkadingil's commentary. What can you say about Merkadingil, the man and his commentary? The man, uh, he was he was in some shape or form a student of the um, the, the legendary uh, abbot of Derodivanos uh, in Bakom or abbot abbot in Bakom. I try to piece together to what extent he was his disciple uh, by uh, laying side by side their life and and timeline um, based off of. Uh, where the Jesuits found them, so there was a Jesuit mission, and you know they have letters that were translated from Latin, and it looks like.